Second bike live of the week, and it's time to put some smiles on faces. For Valentina Rossi fans, that may not apply to you. Welcome to Bike Live. Let's go! Yes, it's a warm welcome to episode 14 of Bike Live here on Motorsport 101 and the second of the week uh, here on this network for obvious reasons. It's been a difficult, difficult week um, for all concerned, um, not just in motorsport, but all across the world given what's happened uh, this week. Um, this is our second Bike Live of the week, as I mentioned, and this show will look back on the French Grand Prix uh, at Le Mans and what a weekend it was as we look to try and put some smiles back on faces. We like to think that's what we're good at doing uh, and entertaining here. Um, across our two shows, Motorsport 101 uh, and Bike Live. So that's what we're going to do tonight because what a Grand Prix weekend it was at Le Mans with a home favourite lighting up Le Mans. Um, Valentino Rossi going agonisingly close to his first victory of the season and a Moto3 pileup which went viral very quickly um, on Sunday morning. Uh, what a weekend it was and I'm going to look back on it in the company of Andre Harrison who perked up a little bit um, with the success of his favourite football team. Welcome back, Dre. Oh, it's nice to see Manchester smile a little bit again. I can't, can't lie, that was, that, that was genuinely nice. And um, again, a very nice weekend of Grand Prix motorcycle racing, which was again a nice distraction from the wall ball and anything else. But yeah, as Lewis says, we, are, we, we, we do our best to entertain people. Although I kind of admit, I'm running on empty, this is the third show mm, I've done yeah. in as many days. <laughs> but, um, it is. If you, if you guys aren't sick of me yet, then then I appreciate you truly. Because if you've got through like the last six hours of me talking about shit, then I applaud you. You're a true fan. <laughs> yes, we uh, we appreciate your uh, your support. Um, given when or when this uh, podcast went up, um, you might have heard more of Dre's voice. Because of course, this Sunday it's Day of Classics too um, on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Mudsport101, Dre. Um, and, um, you know, we're here to talk about bikes, and of course there is motorbikes going on this weekend uh, with the World Supers at Donington, but it's probably the biggest day in the motorsport calendar um, this weekend. Absolutely. Monaco Grand Prix and the Indianapolis 500, which has garnered more attention than perhaps any Indy 500 for, uh, well, certainly in our lifetimes, I would have thought, uh, given um, a certain Spanish Formula 1 world champion who's involved in it. Um Big day, this one. It is a big day. Yeah, well, I'll be here for it this time. Uh, very sadly, I was only here for Monaco for a very short amount last year, and I deeply regret it because one of our most famous jokes ever on the podcast came as a result of a certain Chris Cook towards the end of the 500 where he said the immortal words, and I quote, Alexander Rossi will not win. And um, <clears throat> that... Um, didn't go according to plan for one, Mr. Cook. But um, yeah, we'll be here. I'll be here for it. With me, most likely Ryan King, and a bunch of other guests. They are classics too. We'll be we'll be watching the Monaco Grand Prix. Who knows? Maybe someone other than a Mercedes might actually win this one. Uh, and of course, the Indy 500 with uh, well, again, some Spanish F1 guy apparently is taking part in it this year. Apparently, he's really good at the cars and stuff, so he's going to try ovals for once because. God damn it, I don't think anybody really cares if he misses the Monaco Grand Prix. Fernando Alonso obviously will be there for that. Um, and of course, we'll be here for it too. And hopefully, we'll get a really dramatic Indy 500. Let's call it the Grand National of motorsport because anybody yeah. really can win this darn thing. Um, mm. yeah, so, I've got to say, I might be involved in that too. Because I have to say, um, I am not and never have been um, a particularly big IndyCar fan or more right. point, an, an oval fan. Um, but I could certainly speak for those people who 
perhaps would have been fence sitters in the past. This has certainly caught my attention. Uh, I mean, yes. I, I, I this is the first time ever that I've actually been looking at an Indy 500, thinking I'm going to make a specific effort to make sure I watch this um, yes. because and it's and yeah, the reason is Fernando Alonso. There, there, there is no. Um, denying that, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I recorded um, all of the qualifying that was broadcast live on BT Sport, um, expecting to be thanking myself for recording that because of a Fernando Alonso performance, but instead recorded it and saw a dreadful crash for Sebastian Bordet, who oh, um, we're, we're glad to see is, is on the mend now. Um, but um, but yeah, it's I can't wait for Sunday. I've got to say, given that um, obviously Fernando Alonso's. Um, switch to Indianapolis means that we get a one-off return for the driver who I've supported on. Yeah, my boy in Formula 1, Jensen Button, making his return um, for one last time at Monaco this weekend. So my interest in Monaco has been increased for this this, this occasion, and as has Indy. So uh, Everyone's a winner. Everyone's a winner. Um, although McLaren <laughs> Honda probably won't win this Sunday. Just um, to say the Alonso coverage has gotten so crazy, the American media have formed their own hashtag known as hashtag the other 32. It's become that much of an Alonso fest. Um, during media day today, like I think I saw a minute ago, Tony Kanaan of the Chip Ganassi team interviewing Fernando Alonso because literally no one is talking to him right now. It's 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 that ridiculous. It's become that much of an Alonso fest. But hey, if we'll be people are watching, then who can really complain? It's fantastic. Yeah. If, it, if, it gets, if it gets eyes on the product, as they say, then uh, it can't be a bad thing. Um, yeah, the scenes if Jensen Button gets McLaren's only points for 2017. <laughs> <laughs> The scenes, if that happens. Um, well, anyway, Day of Classics 2. That's on uh, Motorsport 101's YouTube channel. YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101 um, to watch all of that. Even if you miss it live, you can go back and watch it uh, afterwards as well um, if we get another Chris Cook moment yeah, in 2017. Um, <laughs> Indy 500. What's the start time, Indy 500? It's around, what, 6 p.m.? Um, I, I want to say it's 5 p.m. I think it's. I think they start it off at midday. It'll be something like that. I'll get. I'll get confirmation. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pre-race ceremony, think, as you can imagine, with yes. such a huge race. So uh, it's America. So it, it's America. <laughs> yeah, they. Um, yeah, they don't do things by halves over there. Um, so uh, yeah, Dave Classics Two, YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport One Hundred One Sunday. Uh, May 28th. Um, other places you can find us, we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, we are on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. If you follow one or follow us too personally, you probably do already, it has to be said, but if not, at Harrison101HD, at LewisW23, um, and our website where you can find all of this information and back episodes of all of our podcasts, um, both Motorsport 101 and Bike Live. It's motorsport101.net. If you like us that much that you want to back us financially, then you need to head to Patreon. Uh, and the address is patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Back to bikes then um, for episode 14 uh, of Bike Live because um, what a weekend it was um, at Le Mans. It was, of course, tinged with a little bit of sadness given uh, what was going on uh, with Nicky Hayden at the time. Um, but it has to be said, Dre, uh, MotoGP didn't have to do a good job of providing a good distraction um, to people oh, yeah. who were perhaps feeling a little somber heading into the weekend. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've, I've often been critical of, 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 um, of the nature of sports coverage going outside of its field every once in a while. Um, hashtag stick to sports and whatnot. But I'd, I'd be the first person to openly admit that sometimes sports can be a pleasant distraction from the difficulties of life. And of course, you yeah, mentioned Nikki Hayden, who, you know, I think had been in hospital for a couple of days by the time we got to Sunday. Um, 
it was a somber affair, but again, the action was was so spectacular that um, it was a nice reminder that we love bike racing too. Sometimes, and as as like I said, it was it was somber. I mean, there was no fan questions at the Q&A, which has become a MotoGP tradition now, where the fans on social media will ask questions during the press. So there was none of those. They held up a banner for him. And um, yeah, they were they were they were back out there on the track. Uh, a lot of them with with sixty nine references somewhere, but um, yeah, it was a tremendous race. And yeah, I don't mean this in a, in a disrespectful sense, but it was nice to forget about Nikki's condition for a little bit and just um, enjoy bike racing for a bit. And we had an absolutely quality MotoGP race. We did, and it had all the ingredients, uh, this MotoGP race as well. And we were speaking about this briefly before we um, went on air for this podcast. In that. If you were if you were, look, were looking to take one race in isolation or, or one race weekend and put it as a as an advert for MotoGP for people who perhaps don't follow the sport, this is probably the race weekend and the Grand Prix you'd pick um, to yeah. show them. And then it had everything that makes us love this sport. It had it was at one of the classic venues, which perhaps may not be everybody's cup of tea, um, but it, it does have a lot going for it in terms of you know it's it's the, it's the French Grand Prix. The atmosphere was incredible. Uh, over yes. 100,000 there uh, on Sunday. Um, one key reason for that, named Jean Zarco, who really did do his home fans proud um, all weekend. Um, he had the fans off their seats for lap after lap. Um, we then had a thrilling fight for the win that followed that um, between Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi. The first time we've seen those two go head-to-head on the, race, on the racetrack. Uh, as teammates in MotoGP at Yamaha. Um, and it looked as if Valentino Rossi was going to win it until that final lap, which we'll come on to a little bit later on. So, Trey, we had hometown favourite does good, an incredible atmosphere. We had world champions crashing out, and we had last lap drama. This was the perfect advert for MotoGP racing. Uh, Michael Bay was director. Uh, yeah, yeah I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, this was, this was, again, like you said, if you wanted to take this race in a vacuum and basically use it as an advertisement for your sport, you don't get much better than this. A, a shot in the arm from a hometown hero. You had, you know, the, the biggest name in the sport involved in a battle for the win with the, again, the, the biggest up-and-coming name the sport has seen since Mark Marquez. You know, a classic venue, a, a recognisable venue in in the fact it's, it's Le Mans. You know, of course, it's, it just rolls off the tongue. It's Le Mans. It's a it's a proper European race with a home country that has got a reason to be excited about bike racing again because Johan Zarco is having the best rookie season we've seen in MotoGP since since Mark Marquez yeah. four years ago. And yeah, when you put all that together and, you know, you had tremendous action, a, a, a fight that went down to the penultimate corner effectively. And you, you throw all that into, into a, into a blender and hit frappe. And the next thing, you know, bang, you've got a classic MotoGP race. And you know, this, this season I think has been due on. I think we've been waiting for, for, for a really, really good race so far this season. We've had a couple of like lukewarm ones, a couple of ones that were, you know, fairly straightforward. But this one, this was drama right until the very end. Like on the uh, edge of the seat stuff for the best part of 45 minutes. And yeah, what a finale. And again, just a fantastic, fantastic race. One of the best I've ever seen. Mm, yeah, and uh, only one place to start. And it is with that finale um, between uh, the Yamaha riders, Maverick Vinales. Uh, and Valentino Rossi, and it was it, it was that it, that sting in the tail, Dre, that we had at the end of the race. Because for a lot of that, it looked like, dare I say, it looked like vintage Rossi for a lot of that. In that he, you know, we see so many of his 
countless victories in, in MotoGP where he's he's played it cool on the back of the race leader or in a leading group and then with a few laps to go bang he strikes takes the lead and then isn't seen again and it looked like he'd done it again um but we have to give the credit here because i've seen it's very easy to hear to say that valentino rossi bottled it uh, on the final lap but for me it was a forced error um Agreed. because he was forced into an error by a lap record on the final lap by maverick vinales yeah, that is bonkers. Like, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, how many times have we seen it where Valentino Rossi has effectively played possum? And, mm. you know, tactically, he's 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 bullied people into making mistakes or pounced right at the end of a race and pulled the pin and has put himself in a position where the other guy can't respond and, and, and that's it at the end of the race and Rossi's gone on to win. Maverick Vinales had that in his locker the entire time. That it's like Rossi got beaten at his own game. It's it's kind of ridiculous in that sense that Maverick Vinales broke out the fastest race lap ever at Le Mans on, on the final lap of a race yeah, with a Yamaha. I've got to say, when Valentino overtook him, I thought he looked dead for all money. Maverick, I thought that I thought that was game over. I didn't think Maverick had an answer for him. I thought, okay, this is Valentino Rossi at one hundred percent. It's it's like something like Freezer out of Dragon Ball Z. You just don't think there's going to be an answer coming. A bit Maverick, she had an extra three tenths in his back pocket the whole time. I, I just find that insane. It was something that I'd expect out of Valentino Rossi himself. It's it's like the Doctor got beaten in his own game. I, I, I still find it ridiculous. And as you said, Maverick had that last in him and then of course he forces the mistake from Rossi that puts him wide at the hairpin before turn nine and then another one where Rossi tried to put the tried to put his foot down a little bit too early on the third to last corner and then down goes Rossi and uh again I'd say that was I'd say it was one if not two forced errors for Maverick Vinales there that that basically won him the Grand Prix and got a 25 point swing bonus out of Valentino, which is basically Maverick's birthday and Christmas rolled into one. Um, a ridiculous finish and again an absolutely insane final lap from Maverick Vinales. Who, um, I saw an interview after the race. He said straight up he was expecting the worst. He was expecting contact and elbows, but he just he just put off a rocket of a final lap. Incredible stuff. He did, because that final lap from Maverick Vinales, he, he went into it um, 0.4 behind Valentino Rossi, which, with one lap to go, 0.4 of a second is a lot um, to make up on your teammate. Yes. Um, Valentino had just set his own lap record, a 132.395. Uh, Vinales did a 32.309 on the last lap to set the new lap record, which means, that, <laughs> which means that Valentino Rossi would have had to have done a 32.7 or better to beat him um, on that final lap. Um, that, that's a qualifying run. Yeah, that, that, that is qualifying pace. Where would that have put them on the grid, actually? That's that's a good good point worth making um, because they were doing 32s in qualifying um, as it went anyway. 32.7 would have roughly put him sixth on the grid around Andrea De Vizioso on the qualifying grid. So, yeah, they'd have been deep up the field, probably second row maybe in mm. qualifying pace. So that lap record alone for Maverick Vinales would have put him eighth on the grid on the third row just behind Scott Redding. Bonkers pace. Bonkers Absolutely pace. ridiculous pace. And, <laughs> yeah, and Maverick clearly likes uh, that part of the racetrack at Le Mans uh, where Valentino went down because, of course, Maverick Vinales' first ever Grand Prix victory in the 125s uh, took place at Le Mans and it was almost an identical scenario where he psyched out Nico Terrell on the final lap 
um, yeah. to, to win his first Grand Prix um, in just the fourth attempt of his career at the age of 16 um, from everybody else <laughs> back then. Um, so he clearly loves Le Mans because he won there in his Moto3 title winning season as well. Um, and you've got to say, I mean, we can't really say Maverick was under any kind of pressure because he was still in championship contention, but he'd won the first two races and looked very, very good, then had a crash at Texas and a sixth uh, at Jerez. Um, but this much more looked like the old Maverick Vinales, didn't it? Maverick right back on form, as were Yamaha. Yeah, exactly. A Maverick buttery smooth, didn't really put a foot wrong the entire Grand Prix. And I don't think anybody could have blamed him if he had taken the 20 points on this one and let yeah. Valentino Rossi have it. Well, I put let in inverted commas, but you know what I mean when mm. I say that. Yeah, like he, he would have he would have let just, just, okay, Rossi, you can have the win. I lead the championship now. I think it'd have been two points clear if, if Maverick had, had let Rossi take second place. It wouldn't have been so bad. You know, pick your battles and whatnot. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yamaha certainly back on form. I mean, if it wasn't for Rossi, it would have been one, two, and three for Yamaha most likely. And it was their first front row lockout in qualifying since Qatar 2008, which I believe was, I think it was something along the lines of Rossi, Toesland, and Edwards. The, oh, the other, the two. Yeah, Qatar 08. That was yeah, that was Jorge's debut where he took Jorge's pole. First race. Um, and then yeah, Toesland and Edwards were with him on the front row. Um, and it would have been the first Yamaha podium lockout since uh, Phillip Island um, in 2014, where, of course, it was Rossi Lorenzo and Bradley Smith up there uh, on the rostrum uh, in Australia. Um, yeah, if only he'd had money on that. Just <clears throat> um, <laughs> should I tell the story? Go on. Yeah, we might as well, yeah, since we have story. the time. Yeah, my, my, my brother is, is, is a semi-keen gambler. He liked, uh, he was on Skybet, and he saw a request to bet that, uh, that he liked. He liked it was Maverick Vinales to win. With Johan Zarco and Valentino Rossi on the podium at four to one, slapped a tenner on it. I think you can see where this is going. Mm. Um, <laughs> Half a lap to go, he's looking good. Half a lap to go, he's looking great here. Like quarter Zarco of a lap was, to go. <laughs> yeah, quarter of a lap to go, he's still looking pretty decent. Three quarters to go, and all I hear is an iPhone six being thrown across my bedroom <laughs> in the background. And then I realized, I, looked, I was looking out the window, and I, I looked back, and I was like, oh. <laughs> as, as, as I see Rossi hit the canvas, and I I can't remember. My brother is 19 years old. I cannot remember the last time I've seen him that angry. Mm. <laughs> it was it was ridiculous. And um, yeah, so if you had that request a bit, I'm very sorry about how bad your luck was on that one. Mm. But uh, yeah, brother Ryan was absolutely livid after that one. It took about two hours to calm down. <laughs> yeah, sorry about your damn luck, as uh, as James Storm would say. But yes. no, the um, it, it all things considered, despite the final lap, it, it was a terrific weekend for Yamaha. Um, it, yes. not only in the fact that they claimed their five hundredth uh, Grand Prix win of all time, um, which is one hell of a milestone. Um, but but not five hundred victories. Um, but also, it kind of the whole weekend kind of told us Dre that that disaster from them at Jerez was nothing more than a blip. Yeah, it's most certainly. I mean, I, again, did you really think Yamaha was going to be down for that one? This has always, I think, been a Yamaha sort of round. I mean, Jorge Lorenzo, I think he has, I think he has five French Grand Prix wins here. 
So the, the Yamaha's seemingly has always gone well here. They've, they've traditionally always been pretty good. Maverick liked, seemed to like this place last year when he finished third on the Suzuki. Yeah, he was a distant third, but still, I mean, Suzuki was still punching above their weight at that point. And yeah, yeah Valentino was Rossi podium, wasn't it, at the time, Suzuki's? Yeah, I think, I think that was their first podium finish since their return, absolutely. Um, so yeah, Vignales likes the track, Yamaha likes the track, Valentino Rossi is good just about everywhere these days, and again, that was probably the most competitive for a win Valley has looked all season long. And of course, Johan Zarco, is, she, she seems to be getting better by the round was on the podium in second place in the end. It would have been third if Rossi kept it upright, but it would have been like three Yamahas up the front, including the satellite, which was last year's Yamaha. So again, like you can't complain. And, you know, Rossi, we had a forced error in that sense, but um, luckily that one didn't end in both of them hitting the deck. And, you know, yeah, Rossi... True. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen worse, folks. We've seen worse. Mm. But, um, but uh, yeah, for that to happen, I think still overall a pretty darn good result where Yamaha's concerned. Mm, yeah, a, t- a terrific result. First, and they did get a first and second, as we say. It just wasn't perhaps the two bikes they'd hoped for um, taking those two spots. Um, right, Valentino Rossi's race then. And as I say, for so much of it, it looked like one of the classic sort of copybook Valentino victories where he, he came through late in a race and... Um, timed his run to perfection. As it is, he um, he misjudged it by a lap. Um, now, we we kind of teed this one up off air before we started. But are there, in in a strange sort of way, as many positives as there are negatives for Valentino Rossi to take out of this race weekend? The huge negatives, of course, are that he's lost his championship lead um, to his teammate. He now trails him by twenty three points. Um, but for the first time, really, since they've been teammates, Valentino Rossi actually looked like he had the beating of Maverick Vinales. Sodaby, you've fallen into my trap. Uh, <laughs> you've fallen into my Rossi paradoxical trap. Uh, <laughs> this is it, folks. This is the definite... Like, what Sodaby was going through right there was the definition of the Rossi paradox. The paradox of, oh, well, Rossi wasn't all that bad. You know, he, 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 like he had the beating of Maverick. And then, wait a minute, he's a serious title contender. He just crashed a bike on the final lap of a Grand Prix and cost himself at least 20 points. Like, that is a serious, serious error on Valentino's part. And that is uncharacteristic mm. of Valentino, may I add. So, but on, don't... on pure pace, though, have, this, have we seen Valentino Rossi look this quick at all in 2017 no, yet? No. In all fairness, you are you are right. This is the fastest I've seen Rossi in a race, probably since her ref last year. Like, that was impressive. Like, the fact that he was able to... Because Maverick's always been a super fast level rider. He's got that alien level speed. He can probably stick it on pole almost anywhere now. Like, the Rossi, we all know it. Keith Ewan says it 15 times a <laughs> weekend. He's a Sunday man. And he's never been a, a decent qualifier. But again, Rossi was Rossi put the bike where he needed to where he needed to be, despite a bad start. In all fairness, as well, because Rossi did start pretty badly. Um, but you know, he had he always had the pace to give Maverick a run for his money, and that's what he needs to do more often. It's the old punch him in the nose theory, because you know if he does it enough times, he'll start winning races. And I've said it before; it's the biggest Rossi criticism in the book, in my opinion. He doesn't win enough, like. Probably the biggest reason he didn't win the title in 2015 was because he only won four races to Lorenzo seven, and Lorenzo would always have a counter punch for Rossi whenever he threw one at him. And I've got a feeling this might happen again, where like if Rossi doesn't win the title this year, is he going to look back on this race and say this is where I lost it? And that it, it could very well come down to that because. Maverick has only really made one wrong mistake, and that was at Cota this year. Rossi just had another one, and 
you know, it's the second straight race race where you might have either A, had a bad bike, or B, thrown easy points away. And that is not what champions are meant to do, really. No, no. it's um, It's been a costly couple of rounds in the championship for Valentino, who, of course, led this championship by, well, over, over a dozen points a couple of rounds ago. Um <sighs> That final that crash as well. Now I've seen I've seen varying opinions on this on not just the error which caused let Maverick through, but the crash that followed. Um, and how critical can we be of Valentino there? Um, of course, he's the easy thing to say is, and if we're looking at championship, he's given twenty points up. Um, <coughs> without that crash, he would have finished third. Well, you wouldn't have, he would finished second and been three points behind Maverick in the championship. Now, as it is, any rider who makes a mistake halfway around the final lap and loses the lead, surely they're all going to go chasing the win again, aren't they? Very few riders are going to take that position and think, do you know what? Second will do. Yeah, um, I get it. When the helmet goes down, the red mist descends, especially in a tight last lap. We've already made one mistake on that lap that may have cost you the win already. Yeah, like you're, you're still not supposed to fall off, but yeah. <laughs> but I don't think yeah. many riders are gonna in that position are going to just settle for second, are they? Like, especially a guy that's won over 100 Grand Prix like Valentino Rossi has. And again, I completely understand why he went for it. Most people probably would go for it in that situation. They, they, they would absolutely go for it. And they, they would give up like 110% to try and win. And, you know, again, that is a, that is it's still a rare error from Valentino because he just doesn't normally make those sorts of mistakes, especially when in the clutch. That's something... He's not a crasher, and he's not a guy that's known for overriding a motorcycle. Like, Valentino's always known where the limit is on the bike, probably better than any rider in history. Um, he's always known where the line is, and very ready does he step over it. And that was one of the rare cases where he did. And the thing is, it happened last year, too. It happened last year on multiple occasions where her, where Kota, uncharacteristic crash. You know, Assen, uncharacteristic crash. Mategi, uncharacteristic crash. So, like... Rossi's done this a handful of times now in the last two seasons, and it's a shame. But I can I can understand the context of of you know Rossi going for it, and you know it's an understandable mistake that that, that uh, that's why he's unfortunately the the punishment doesn't really fit the crime on this one, um, in that metaphorical sense. But unfortunately, a donut is still a donut on the scoreboard, and that's that's the problem with it now is that. Of course, no rider's going to think I'm going to play it safe here in this close race battle for the win because he wants to win, and that's what every rider is here for. But unfortunately, I think that crash, and I'm, I'm going to spin this in a positive light because I'm a nice guy. <laughs> this just shows just how stratospheric the standard is in MotoGP these days, where Maverick Vinales essentially had to ride the fastest race lap ever seen at Le Mans to win this race. And that's what it took, essentially, mm. because basically Maverick had to bully Valentino into making two mistakes and two mistakes that he would never normally make. That's how good this kid is. And that's why Maverick Vinales has been, has been Bookie's favorite to win the title since the opening round. That is why that, that is why Valentino probably has to go to this extreme to try and win races, because Maverick has had an answer for everything pretty much so far this season. And this was no example. But again, it just goes to show you just how high the standard is in MotoGP right now. It's it's an, it, it, like we, we've said it gets better and better every year. But this it's like he's jumped up another three levels this yeah, year. Maverick's raising the bar, isn't he, this year? Um, with his performances on that Yamaha. Um, Valentino wasn't the only world champion to crash in that Grand Prix either. We'll get on to the other shortly. But before that, 
Um, Dre, we have to talk about the home favourite, the guy who lit up this race weekend at Le Mans, Joan Zarco. Um, and it's it's easy to forget, given how well he did um, on Sunday, that Joan Zarco started the qualifying procedure in Q1. He'd ended up yeah. the wrong side of that top 10 in a frenetic free practice three, the most chaotic and crazy free practice three any of us have ever seen, um, yeah. where both the KTMs made it in to the top 10 we'll come on to them later uh, Zarco failed to do so knocked out Danny Pedrosa at the very end of Q1 before yeah. going on to stick it on the front row and um, his race weekend really kicked off from there pretty much I mean what was so impressive about that as well was that Zarco's Q1 lap was the seventh lap on that soft tyre yeah, that he won the run he did we don't know that we never see that in MotoGP race he's done the one run and he's been able to make it work and like, that's why Zarco ran the soft tyre during the race. He just had a, a ridiculous amount of confidence on the soft compound tyre and made it work pretty much until maybe the last five laps of the race where the pace from the Amos was probably just a little bit too much for him on the 2017 bike. But, gosh, like, there's no other way to say it. Zarco has been a revelation so far in MotoGP because, remember, you see, to forget, he's doing this on last year's bike. And it clearly shows that last year's bike was a rocket. And in any case, like, Zarco is having, like I said, the best rookie season maybe this decade outside of Marquez. And, gosh, um, what can what more can you say? Like, again, he's like a shot in the arm for a sport that didn't need a shot in the arm. And that's that just kind of says it all. It's like, yeah, Maverick's in a factory team now, and he's championship leader, and he's been fantastic, obviously. But... The story of this season so far for me has been the rise, the fall, and the rise again of Johan Zarco, because I, I, I have like okay, I've been watching Grand Prix motorcycle racing now for gosh about fifteen, sixteen years, and I have never, ever, ever seen a crowd start chanting a man's name when he's got off of the bike on Park Fermi. Like, like you yeah, can see it wasn't Valentino Rossi. And it wasn't Valentino. It was 100,000 Frenchmen going, Zarco, Zarco, Zarco. And I'm like, wow. It gave me goosebumps. I've never seen anything like it for a rider that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't Valentino Rossi. Because Rossi's got the hive, the yellow fever that comes to every single race. Johan Zarco was being mouthed off by name in the crowd. I've never seen anything like it. And... I think that was the, the the first French MotoGP podium, I think, since 97, I want to say, for a home race. So for the fact that Zarco did that has given the French a real bastion of hope for the future. Um, because, again, we've not really had a prominent Frenchman in MotoGP since Depunier. And he was never really on this sort of level that we're seeing with Zarco. He's regularly challenging for podiums. And here he is. He just seems to be getting better and better every single race. This is this is phenomenal stuff from Zarco. Yeah, truly phenomenal. He, he put it on the front row behind the two factory bikes of Vinales and Rossi on Saturday, as I say, having gone through Q1 to do it. Um, and then, as you say, the, just the roar, not only at the end, but when he took the lead at the Dunlop chicane on lap one, where he lined up Vinales on the run off the start line and then drilled him into the chicane. And the crowd went wild. And it says a lot when, I mean, we, obviously we all have favourite riders as uh, you know, in any um, series of motorcycle races. We always have the guy we'd rather see win. Um, but I think Joan Zarco is a measure of the, the way he's captured the imagination of so many MotoGP fans that just about all of us really found ourselves deep down cheering Zarco on on Sunday. 
I was. Yeah. No shame. I was like, come on, Zarko, give these French something to be happy about. For God's sake, they have to, they have to deal with Randy Lepinier and Suzuki. The least we can do is repay him with a decent Zarko performance. And he's on the cover of Murdo GP's magazine this month as well. He's, he's got the front row spread, which is amazing given that Maverick has been, you know, championship leader or in the mix for the championship all, all year long. And he's been a revelation in his own right. And a sport that's got Rossi and Marquez as its two biggest stars, Lorenzo on a factory team. You know, the, the 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 paddock's been jumbled up and down pretty much. And despite all that, on the cover is Johan Zarko for his home round. Kind of says it all, really. And we're discovering more about him as as, as as the weeks go by. And this guy's becoming a star very, very quickly. And again, like the French haven't really had one like this, maybe since the days of Olivier Jacques in the 250 era, I'd say. Um, like it's again, it's, it's like I said before, it's a revelation. And we've just not really seen anything like it since. And, you know, if he keeps this up and, you know, as, as top independent, I mean, he's making a mockery of Cal Crutchlow at the moment. And that was the guy that, like, I remember, like, the the um, the, the Meet the Riders intro that MotoGP has. And, like, they've, they've put Crutchlow in that alien category now with the, with the, with the real big hitters. And I'm like, mm. oh, okay. They're putting Crutchlow in here. And it's like, well, wait a minute. What about that two-time old champ, Johan Zarco? And next thing you know, Zarco is actually on the outside of championship contention. Can you imagine if he'd actually finished that carry in Qatar? Yeah. Holy cow. He'd be, he would be, well, he would, let's say, let's just imagine for one second he wins that race. He would be championship leader right now um, because he'd have 25 extra points and uh, Maverick would have five fewer. Uh, so he'd be right up there with Maverick at the moment. And, yeah. and, and, and let's not, let's not lose sight of the context here as well with Zarco because, up until Jack Miller's wet win last year in Assen, we hadn't seen a satellite rider win for 10 years. Um, Crutchlow did it twice last year, um, albeit with a little bit of factory assistance from Honda um, into the bargain. Um, but let's not lose sight of the fact that it was an independent team and a satellite bike that was winning the Grand Prix. So that's the measure of it. That's how infrequent it is, that last year was yeah. the first time in 10 years. And we've seen Jean Zarco on an independent Yamaha for an independent team. It's not like Tech 3 are getting... Um, Yamaha assistance. They get last year's bike and are told to get on with it, essentially. Pretty um, much. And he, he's now finished second at his home Grand Prix. This isn't even a circuit he historically goes well at, at Le Mans. Jean no. Zarco. I mean, how long is it before we see this guy winning a Motor Grand Prix race? Yeah, maybe maybe he could be the replacement for number 46. Mm. Just well, the thought. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that Monster Yamaha Tech 3 signed their one-year extension and announced it on the eve of this Grand Prix. They announced they'd signed Zarco for 2018, um, which is just about a measure of how well this guy's doing, that his team felt the need to tie him down after four races. Yeah, it's not like last year where Hervé Poncherol said to Bradley, oh, sorry, whatever happens, we're not keeping you. Two days before Qatar started. Uh, so... Kind of says it all, really. Where, like, yeah, like you say, that they they want to tie Zarco down immediately for another year because the guy's just been that good so far. And I actually kind of feel a bit sorry for Jonas Volga, who, as it stands, is the only man in the entire MotoGP field that scored points in every single mm. round. Had a very, very good seventh yes. place finish today, and nobody gives a damn right nope. now. And it's a shame because Volga has been fantastic so far this season in a vacuum. Like we'd be talking about Volga as a genuinely great rookie on his own terms right now, if it wasn't for the fact that <laughs> Johan Zarco has just been this good. It's I feel so sorry for Jonas, where he's actually stamped out a lot of his consistency problems he had in Moto 2 and has genuinely shown improvement, and yet 
that Frenchman's just that frigging good right now. It's just it's 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 a really really um, short straw to pull, so to speak. Mm, yeah, so it is going to be just so excited to see what Zarco does uh, in the rounds to come because he won uh, at Mugello in the Moto Two class last season. Um, albeit with a little bit of fortune attached to that race, given the red flag that happened midway through it, which gave him a bit of an advantage on tyres. Um, but he's coming up to circuits now on the calendar where historically he goes well at. Um, like I say, Le Mans has never, even in his best Moto2 days, Sarko never won at Le Mans. Um, so, oh. you know, this, was, this wasn't this was a circuit that he, that he usually excels at. But fan power, um, and I'm not talking about the kind of fan power that we see assisting Formula E riders, uh, drivers these days um, with with, with uh, internet bots helping them out. Um, this was uh, this was goodwill from a hundred thousand rabid Frenchman that uh, powered Zarko yes. around on Sunday uh, to second place. Um, as it goes without saying, a career best for him uh, in MotoGP. Um, as far as the other world champion that I mentioned, who crashed out of the Grand Prix, Mark Marquez, who didn't have a great weekend all told. He qualified down in fifth. Um, and it's very rare that we talk about Mar- Marquez qualifying that low down the field. Um, no. But it, I don't know. It kind of appeared to me, Dre, with that crash that Marquez had, of this was Mark Marquez having to do the chasing, which meant that he couldn't ride within himself. He had to ride at 10 tenths. And that Honda doesn't like going at the edge of the limit, does it? I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I actually have to give credit to Keith Hewen on commentary for something. He said that... A- about 15 laps in that race. He said himself, Marquez doesn't look comfortable on that bike. I wonder if it's got something to do with the medium compound front that he chose. And yeah, I was like... Honda riders always choose the hard front. Yeah, they always choose the hard front. Marquez, in particular, loves the hard front tyre. He picked the medium on this occasion, and... Well, you know what happens next. Mm. And again, Keith Ewan pretty much called his shot on that one. And I have to be... I have to give him a tip of the hat on this one. I'm a, I'm a believer in fairness. He called it pretty much. And yeah, I, I was like, dang it. I, I said to Brother Ryan, I was like, God, Keith Ewan actually got, got a call right. God damn it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, like, again, you're absolutely right. That Honda doesn't like being at the limit. Honda traditionally don't go well around here in the first place. And Marquez himself said the aim was 4 4 fifth. He had he knew he, he'd, he'd be in a reach just to make the podium right now. So maybe again he maybe should have just let pedrosa have that have that podium or maybe have that fourth place on the road at the time because pedrosa looked a lot more a lot more comfortable out there than maybe marquez did because i mean marquez himself said he never felt truly comfortable with the front and if marquez isn't comfortable with the front of his bike well he's he's gonna struggle he's gonna really struggle that's a big part of marquez's game so Maybe it was a bad strategical call from the hop from the Honda guys. Again, we've seen that one before. Argentina. Um, or maybe it was a Marquez himself that made the decision. It whatever it was, a combination of unfortunate events led to the second Marquez crash in five races. In in his case, thank God everybody else above him has had at least one major boo boo so far this season. Otherwise, he'd be in real trouble right about now. Yeah, <laughs> two crashes in the first five races um, for Mark Marquez and. This is this is unusual given what we saw from him last year, where he just won the championship largely down to consistency and avoiding mistakes. Um, and right from the start of the season, given how Maverick started it, he's having to play catch up. And as in 2015, you just get the feeling with Mark that when he's having to play catch up, the mistakes do creep in. He's not in a position in or in a position now where he has that luxury of being able to just tone it down ever so slightly. He's got to go for it. 
he's the Ronnie O'Sullivan of, of of MotoGP in the sense of Ronnie's probably much better off like Marcus is as a front runner. He likes to be out in front. He like in the same way that Ronnie likes to rack up frames and try and beat you into submission early on and make you do all the chasing, make you have to take the risks. Marquez is probably the same sort of guy where he likes to be at the front. He's, he's won championships mostly from being at the front and remaining in control and putting the pressure on the other guy to succeed. And that's how we, Marquez has pretty much won his free MotoGP world titles were, you know, taking control early on and then going from there and making everybody else have to chase him. And if you saw in 2015, the one time that Marquez had to do the chase and he had to ride beyond the bike himself and, Again, we saw what happened. Marquez crashed six times that season in 2015, including a couple of really, really silly ones, even for Marquez's standards. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's much better off as a front. We've, not, we've never really seen Marquez have to chase. And to be fair, given the circumstances, he kind of got away with it going into this round because because of what happened at, at Jerez, where Marquez finished in second and both Yamaha struggled. He basically wiped out the deficit of points he'd lost at Argentina when he crashed, and that was a, a Marquez gimme round right there. So he's gotten away with one once already this season. I'm not sure he's got another one in him. because oh, he's eventually handed those points back again, hasn't he? Uh, yeah. he's, he's handed 25 points back to Maverick. Um, uh, Le Mans. Like, he trails, again, Yeah, he trails by 27 now. Um, in the championship, so um, yeah, he's got another uh, race's worth of points to make up again, because um, it only took him two rounds to make them up last time, whether he gets that lucky again, uh, we'll have to wait and see, um, with Valentino and Mark both crashing out of the Grand Prix, um, second in the championship now, and the nearest challenger to Maverick Vinales is Danny Pedrosa, winner of the Spanish Grand Prix, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and second or third at Le Mans, uh, from 13th on the grid, because he was knocked out of Q1, this most star-studded Q1 for a long, long time, um, where Pedrosa was involved, as was Zarco, as were the two factory Ducatis, um, as was Folger. You know, there were so many strong guys um, in that Q1 session. Pedrosa was knocked out of it. Um, but Dre, 13th to 3rd, and you know, we, we can't argue with the championship standings the way they look at the moment. Danny Pedrosa is 2nd and only 17 off the lead. It's like Pedrosa's playing the Marquez role from last year. Just limit, just, just minimize mistakes, damage limitation, take what you can get, and Stealth. hope the other guys screw up. Um, and that's what, yeah, like he's, he's like, in a sense, sure, he's playing it safe, but Pedrosa right now has not really put a foot wrong so far this season. He may not have the ultimate pace that Maverick Vinales or Valentino Rossi or Mark Marquez have in his career anymore. But simply put, I mean, we mentioned it earlier. Jonas Volga is, is the only man to have scored points in every round this season. He's ninth in the championship. So everyone above him has made at least one mistake in a race where it's cost them to the point where they haven't scored points. And that kind of says it all right now. And Pedrosa has, has made like the smallest amount of those mistakes so far this season. So when that happens, you can't really argue with that. And, you know... There's value in 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 not making in not making errors. You saw it last year with Marquez and Pedrosa. Right now, is is playing that role so far. He's finished four out of five races in the top five. Yeah, he only, he only had the mistake in Argentina. So besides that, since then he's finished on the podium every single round. So it's working for him right now. Mm, and he he does have genuine race pace this year as well. Because let's not lose sight of the fact that before Marquez went down, Danny was hunting him down. Um, around, around around midway point in that race because Danny had had to come from the fifth row of the grid and um, Keith Ewan was mentioning it on commentary and, and I think we'd all noticed it I certainly noticed it um, from having the live timing up on screen 
Um, Danny's pace as in that race was was so strong. We we were all saying, weren't we? And Keith said it on commentary, just watch out for Danny Pedrosa late in this race. He so often comes on strong late in the race at Le Mans. Uh, and he was doing it again. He was chasing Mark down um, before Mark went down. It looked as if Danny would have probably beaten Mark anyway um, had Most Mark likely. stayed up, upright. So Danny's got real pace this year and he just needs to make sure he starts towards the front because that's going to be such a key role this season, isn't it, Dre? If, if we're going to have so many different guys who could win races, qualifying takes on such a great importance now because you know Danny ended up 13th on the grid without doing a whole lot wrong. Exactly. And again, like practice sessions are going to be more important. Qualifying is going to be more important. You just got to get good times in in every single session you can. And Pedrosa is not the best qualifier out there. Same deal with Valentino where, you know, he'll, he'll do well to put a bike on the front row for a Grand Prix in qualifying. And that doesn't happen very often with Danny P anymore. Like there are better qualifying specialists in the field like Cal Crutchlow, like Jorge Lorenzo in in, in, in his Yamaha days, Andrea Davizioso, etc. Obviously Zarco has been fantastic so far this season. Same sort of deal where, again, he put it on the front row. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. If, if, if Pedrosa... He, he can't make life difficult for him because he always has this habit of either falling and getting hurt or he just makes life a little bit too difficult for himself by having to come up through the field one too many times. Like Valentino had that same problem in his title campaigns in years in years past. So it could be the same deal here again. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Pedrosa has got genuine race pace. He showed it pretty much all season long. He just needs to, to, make, to make his life a little bit easier. And if he can get himself on the front row or get himself on the top five, and get himself in that leading group from the start, he's got an answer for these guys. Mm, yeah, he's, he's always a guy that comes on strong late in a Grand Prix. So, he, yeah, if he can get himself in the in the argument, get himself in that leading group early on, he's he's always got a good shot of making of, of turning that into at least a podium. Top three then, and the end, was Vinales from Zarco from Pedroza. Fourth and sixth went to the Ducati boys, Davizioso and Lorenzo. Um, Dobby from the second row, he got through Q1 along with Zarco, but Lorenzo had to come through Q2. Well, he had to come from 16th on the grid, having not made it through Q1. He started 16th, and through free practice, Dre, I mean, he was the slowest guy in free practice three, um, about five seconds off the pace, could you believe, in that session. He looked nowhere through most of free practice four and then qualifying, and yet somehow managed to come out the other end of it with sixth place. Yeah, gosh, an, an incredible job um, from Jorge Lorenzo on that was like from 16th place. Again, very quietly, the last couple of rounds, he's he's really gotten his stuff together. Um, gosh, um, again, again, I don't know why the qualifying was so bad. I mean, Lorenzo, I expected better from him where that's concerned because Ducati is a good qualifying bike. And again, they've, they've, they've struggled a little bit around here. And I still think this year is probably going to be a bit of a write-off for him in terms mm. of really challenging overall. But... At the moment, at least, yeah, Lorenzo is doing, you know, he's doing a solid job out there. I mean, he had the podium at Haraf where he really looked like he was back to something near his best. This wasn't too bad in the context of of, of Le Mans. Ducati's traditionally not gone well around here. It wasn't bad, and that's that's what they need to do. Um, mm. But yeah, but yeah, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's work in progress. But that was solid from Lorenzo. And, Dovi, in all fairness, that was a pretty typical Dovi performance. There, it's a solid workman, like got the best result he could on given the situation. So yeah, yeah. Dovi winning a Dovi winning a head-to-head with Cal Crutchlow, just like their Tech Three days um, for fourth and fifth. Uh, Lorenzo sixth as he was in Q1, and um, yeah, when you look at the guys who were ahead of him in Q1, um, Davizioso, Zarco, Pedrosa, Bautista, and Folger. 
Um, you know, that wasn't exactly the easiest Q1 to get out of, was it, um, for Lorenzo? And he was ahead of guys like Iannone and Alessio Spargo and Petrucci, um, who were all in Q1. Um, so I guess there are always going to be some big names that didn't make it out of that, given only two advance, and Lorenzo was one of those. But he did salvage it on the Sunday by getting himself up to sixth. Uh, seventh in the race then, um, just behind Lorenzo, uh, went to Petrucci. Um, in fact, he didn't go to Petrucci on the uh, Pramax. Both Pramax blew up. It went to Folger on the Tex for Yamaha. Eighth to Jack Miller. Now, that doesn't even go close to telling the story of Jack Miller's weekend um, because the fact that he's around to tell the tale at all, Dre, is a victory in itself, given what happened to him in free practice four. Borderline miracle. That was one of the most horrifying-looking crashes I've seen since the week before with Eugene Laverty. But that's besides mm. the point. Um, yeah, Jesus. Um, he loses the front going through turn two, and which is a main example because Marquez pretty much had the exact same accident a, a day later. Mm. And, and turn two is top speed. It's basically top, flat out. Yeah, top two, you're looking at, gosh, maybe 170 miles an hour or so. Like, Jack, like, has a massive front bobble. He can't save it, and he basically drives his bike straight into the wall, like something you would get on a video game, basically, mm. at, at, at this point. And, oh, my gosh. Um, all I'm saying is thank the good Lord that, uh, that Jack was actually – you, you walked away from that when, you know, only a couple of paracetamol later, and he was fine, apparently. And, and that is just – my, my, if you've seen this accident, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. If you haven't, go find it. It is horrifying. Like It, it, it looks worse. It's one worse. of the worst I've seen. Yeah, it's one of the worst I've ever seen. And it, it looks worse the more times you see it. Um, gosh, I, I do not know how Jack Miller walked away. But as, as, as an Aussie, you might literally be invincible. I don't get it. Maybe it's something in the, yeah, in the I think okay. I think the big saving grace for him was that he, he sort of glanced along the wall, didn't he? The, the tire yes. wall that he ran into. If he'd hit that head on, uh, you know, we don't even want to think what happened. It would have sent him straight over the, over the tire barrier. Um, given that he sort of glanced across it, he then sort of fell down the road um, and, and still hit, hit the barriers at a pretty fair speed. But, you know, fortunately, that's what those safety barriers are there for, to cushion a rider's uh, heavy landing or heavy impact. And, yeah, it did its job in the end for, 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 for Jack Miller, who, as Dre mentioned, got himself back up on his feet. He had secured a direct passage into Q2, qualified, uh, obviously, in the top 12 as a result of that. And, as I say, went on to finish in eighth place. Uh, in the MotoGP race, which is, you know, take his ass and victory out of it. That's about as good as Jack Miller's had in MotoGP um, over the course of his career. Um, you know, he's looking like a, a genuine, consistent top 10 challenger this season. Um, five, races for, five races for Miller, four out of the five in the top 10. Yeah, he's looking seriously good. And he is 10th in the World Championship as well uh, on 29 points. Top independent um, is Zarco on 55, then Crutchlow on 40. Uh, Folger on 38, then comes Miller on 29. So he's uh, he's just about in touch there uh, at the moment for the top independent by didn't have been so consistent um, so far. Um, he came eighth. Uh, just outside the top 10 saw the two KTMs who both scored points. Um, that's the second time that's happened this season because they both scored back in Argentina as well when they scored their first ever points uh, in yeah. MotoGP. Um, but they've kind of confirmed, Dre, the progress they made in Jerez where they took themselves from tail-enders to genuine midfielders and however oddball a session it was free practice three on the saturday morning credit where credit's due for ktm for the first time ever getting both bikes into q2 and the only other factory team that could say that were yamaha yeah they've made progress real fast and again this just proved that her was no fluke to get both 
to get both riders into the top 10 and qualify. And then again, both of them in the points during the race in 12th and 13th, respectively. Great, great job from the KTM team. They, mean, they seem to be making real progress very, very quickly indeed. And yeah, they, they, like this is faster than I think even Suzuki had. Like Suzuki had a couple of pole positions and whatnot, and they had some decent flashes too. But like KTM, like this, this is going to be the worst year ever for a new team to come into play. And yet, despite that, they've they've made themselves competitive almost immediately. That's very impressive indeed. The, the team is doing a really great job. The riders are coming through nicely. Again, hats off to KTM because I did not expect them to be up here already this quickly. Very, very impressive. Super, superb result for them. Uh, as I say, Movistar Yamaha qualified one and two. Um, Repsol Honda only got one bike into Q2. Uh, Danny didn't make it. The Factory Ducati team only got one bike into Q2. Lorenzo didn't make it. Suzuki couldn't get either bike into Q2. Neither could Aprilia. Um, so as I say, other than Yamaha, KTM were the only manufacturer to get both factory bikes into Q2. Um, on Saturday, and uh, Paul and Bradley 8th and 10th on the grid, um, which is a terrific result for them. Um, and as I say, they translated it into some points on the Sunday as well. Um, full credit to KTM, who appear to be making genuine progress at the moment. Um, we can't say the same, Dre, about Aprilia. They haven't really made huge progress since that great result for Relation in the opening round uh, of the season. Um, but much to the delight of our absent co-host, co it appears that Sam Lowe's is making progress. First points ever for him in MotoGP. Disclaimer. Let the record show that I did not want to talk about Sam Lowe's <laughs> scoring his first points in MotoGP. It's like Sotheby has bent his rules to the establishment of Rebecca James. And like Sotheby is currently talking to you of a stiletto in his back because it was Bex's idea and it was a threat. <laughs> The Bex would probably kill him if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, we've got to talk about Sam Lowe's on this show. Yes, yes, good job, Sam Lowe's. Nice to get your first points on the board. He, to be fair to him, his results have gotten better as the season's gone by. Um, again, Alicia Spagaro started super strong. Hasn't really been able to replicate that form since then, which is kind of peak Alicia Spagaro, really. Mm. Um, but, yeah, like like you said, like a pretty started really strong, and it looks like they've slipped a little bit. Maybe, maybe they've stayed stagnant. Um, as the other, as everybody else seems to have gotten a little bit better, um, maybe except for Suzuki, more on them in a minute. But um, yeah, uh, gosh, uh, it's it's weird. It is it is weird that uh, you know, pretty uh, like looked really strong to start. It's like they've back to they've gone something something back towards their original sort of predicted form. Yeah, not mm, quite well. Yeah, because they've they've been testing some developments at uh, Barcelona this week, where a lot of MotoGP teams have been doing some private testing. We'll talk about that yeah. test uh, later on. Um, but yeah, they've been testing some developments, so we may see a step forward from them at Mugello. And boy, do they need it! Because if you're uh, uh, if you've got a motorcycle that's underpowered, the last place you want to go is Mugello right now um, with that long straight. So um, good luck to them there. And and to be fair, um, whatever uh, Bex's uh, opinions, and uh, you could all imagine what she'd be saying if she was on the show. Um, let the record show. Um, because the practice times back it up. Sam Lowe's was actually quicker than Alicia Spargo all weekend in Le Mans. Um, quicker than him in all the practice sessions. And, to be fair to him, Sam Lowe's was only 34 thousandths of a second from getting into Q2 himself on Saturday morning. Um, Bradley Smith, who got the last spot, he was 10th in practice three on a 36.805. Sam Lowe's was 13th on a 36.839. Uh, so Sam Lowe's was nearly straight oh. into Q2 himself. Um, and Alicia Spargo... How much did he pay you to say that? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm not working again. So, um, yeah, there's your there's your your idea on that. But Alicia Spargro was 20th in free practice. 
um, on uh, on Saturday morning, uh, some three seconds slower uh, than Sam Lowe was. So uh, it kind of just shows you how bad a Lacey's weekend was um, and how good by comparison uh, Sam's was. Um, no manufacturer, though, had a worse weekend than Suzuki, um, who couldn't get either bike into Q2. Andre Inoni qualified 17. Solomon Gintoli qualified last, but given that he's a stand-in for Alex Rins and it's the first time he's ridden a MotoGP bike in five odd years, we can't really criticise him too much for that. Um, but even though Andre Inoni got in the top 10 at the end of it, Dre, he was 48 seconds off the race win. and. Jesus. I cannot believe we're talking about Suzuki in those terms. Now, okay, Yonone fought with the leading group in Qatar, um, but it, it appears that this team has taken a sizable step backwards this year. We mentioned it earlier in the show that Maverick Vinales had, you know, Suzuki's first podium since the comeback just this round last year. Since then, they've, they've, they've won a Grand Prix. They've had, you know, podium finishes. They've had Alicia Spagro and Maverick regularly in the top six. Um, that was last year. They looked like the team that they looked like they had overtaken Ducati as a factory mm. last year. Like they, like they had genuinely got the measure. If it wasn't for Yonone's podium at Valencia, they'd have beaten them. Yeah, exactly. The fact that you know Dovi came on strong and got that win at Sepang right at the end of the year. But you're right. I think they genuinely have taken a step back this year. Where, as it stands, like Tech Three has overtaken them. Ducati are back in front of them. Right now, Aprilia might have grounds to be in a better way. Alicia Spagro is still higher in the championship than Andrea Iannone is right now by two points. And he's on an Aprilia, which kind of says it all. Yeah, that, like, KTM Iannone's, outqualified them. Yeah, Iannone, like Crazy Joe right now, is not living up to his name in the good sense right now. He's, got, he's had two top tens, but one of them was a tenth and one of them was a seventh. This is not... like I don't think this is what people were expecting when Iannone was going to join that team. They thought, okay... They might be able to get back to something like Maverick's sort of form, where you, know, make, you might get in the top five on a regular basis, get the odd podium here and there. Ian Emery's not delivered on any front like that yet. Again, it could have been a podium, maybe in Qatar. Um, he was up there in the leading group, but then, of course, made a mistake. He drove, you know, drove into Marquez's rear tyre, and down Peaky he went. Peaky and Oni, like, like always going a little bit too far. when it, like His eyes get, get a bit too big when he's up the front. But uh, yeah, as you say, it's 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 a shame because Suzuki looks like they aren't there. Yet. I mean, they've been they've been very unlucky with Alex Rins on the other bike so far. This he's never to go through a test rider, and now Ginters, who obviously is you know he's not going to get up to speed that quickly. And yeah, luckily he did get a point in the end, which you know a point's a point. But um, when you've got when you've had one bike not running at its optimum, really, with Rins missing the last three rounds and. Your, your leading rider, Ian Oni, not re-delivering. It's been a pretty rough season so far for Suzuki by any measure. Mm, it is, and we're not going to see Rins, incidentally, until Barcelona at the earliest. He will miss Mugello 2, um, which is next weekend. Gintoli will substitute again for Rins uh, in that race, which is, is nice to see, we have to say. We, we enjoy yes. seeing Gintoli uh, again. Uh, in MotoGP next weekend because, of course, BSB aren't in action for another few weeks yet. Um, the race result then at Le Mans, let's run you through that because we've covered uh, just about everything from that race. Vinales, the winner in the end um, from Joan Zarco. Zarco taking the best result for Tech 3 um, since Bradley Smith's podium uh, a couple of years ago at Mizano when he finished second famously uh, in that wet-to-dry race. Third going to Danny Pedrosa in the end from 13th on the grid. Uh, good comeback for him. Davizioso fourth, then came Crutchlow, 
Um, Lorenzo in sixth on the second of the Ducatis. Folger seventh for Tech 3. Uh, so a good home race for that team. Second and seventh. Miller in eighth. Loris Baz, second of the home riders in the top ten in ninth. And Andrea Inoni, top Suzuki uh, in tenth. Rest of the points were handed out to Tito Rabat, Paul Espargaro, Bradley Smith, Sam Lowes, and Sylvain Gintoli. Uh, eight riders didn't finish. Rossi, Alessio Espargaro, Marquez, Petrucci, Redding, Abraham, Barbara, and Bautista. That's an interesting line, by the way. As I mentioned a moment ago, on the Pramac team, not just Scott Redding, but Petrucci broke down as well. Both Pramac Ducatis breaking down uh, at Le Mans last weekend. Championship standings then. Vinales back in the lead for the first time uh, since the second round in Argentina, where, of course, he won. Uh, He leads Danny Pedrosa by 17 points. Valentino Rossi is a further six back in third, a further four back to Marquez in fourth, a further three to Zarco in fifth, and another point to Dovizioso in sixth. 31 points covers the top six uh, in MotoGP from three different manufacturers. Cal Crutchlow is seventh on 40 points. Uh, then comes Lorenzo in eighth on 38, tied with Folger, uh, who's ninth, and Jack Miller completes the top 10 on 29 points. As I mentioned earlier on, first points of the season for Sam Lowe's and for Sylvain Gintoli. Uh, Yamaha yeah. lead the Constructors' Championship by 13 points uh, from Honda. Uh, Ducati are a comfortable third. Suzuki are fourth. They have jumped ahead of Aprilia uh, into fourth at the weekend, thanks to that top 10 from Yanone. KTM are bottom in sixth and the team's championship doesn't make quite so good reading for Suzuki because they are 10th out of 12 uh, in the team's <laughs> championship. Uh, it's Repsol Honda who trail Yamaha by 21. Um, Movistar Yamaha lead it from Repsol Honda. Then Tech 3 a third on 93, a point ahead of the factory Ducati team uh, who are fourth. Nice. Um, Pramac a fifth. Then comes Mark VDS in sixth. LCR Honda who are kind of punished by the fact they only have the one rider a seventh. Um, Avintia at eighth. Then come Aspar in ninth. Suzuki 10 on 23 only Aprilia and the Red Bull KTM team behind them it's, it's amazing because Aspar's only scored two points like like their last three rounds and they're still ahead of Suzuki yeah, they're That's dying out on that Bautista result in Argentina aren't they <laughs> They all count. Um, yeah, they all count. Where Bautista famously finished fourth there um, in the second round of the season. That accounts for over half of uh, Aspar's points total um, so far uh, this season. Um, so uh, that's the way it looks in MotoGP. Uh, on to Moto3 then. Um, we'll come on to Moto2 in a little bit because that's the class with by far the least to discuss um, from Luan. Um Moto3 has plenty to discuss, um, not least what happened early on. Um, anyone who set their alarms early on Sunday morning to watch the Moto3 race live were treated to quite the spectacle, Dre, on lap two. Um, see, that's the thing. Guilty secret. I didn't get a chance to see this live. So, like, was there actually some sort of oil oil leak on the opening lap that we didn't get to see on the hard camera? It, it would, because... Yeah, it would appear so. There was a four-rider pile-up on the first lap of the race. Um, I right. can tell you two of the riders involved. I can't say all four. I can remember from memory Adam Noradin, um, whose bike ultimately ended up dropping fluids, uh, was involved, as was Jakob Kornfile. Um, on the Peugeot, Noradin um, got scooped up and then continued. This happened at the Dunlop chicane on lap one, so the very next corner is La Chapelle. Keep, uh, keep an eye on that because that will become important in a second. Um, so as the riders come around on lap two, they arrive at La Chapelle, and as if they've just flicked a switch or turned sprinklers on, 
down they all go um, at La Chapelle. Uh, at least a dozen riders, Dre, all down at once. I have never seen anything like it in a Moto3 race ever. That was ridiculous. Like, it went viral. Like, this is like mm. Jalopnik. We're picking it up. I saw it on Facebook shared about two or three times over. And people that aren't even bike fans are picking this up. It was insane. About a dozen riders hit the deck, including Romano Fanati. I think Nicola Budega was one of them. I think Antonelli went, went down. Joanne Mir went down. Like Antonelli, like he was lucky because there was a bike that was charging straight for him. He had to duck out of the way as a as a flying 250cc 80 kilo bike was about to hit him. Um, again, like it, it was ridiculous. It was something like something out of a bad action movie. It's like Saving Private Ryan all over again. It was. It, it was insane. Um, never seen anything like it. A spectacular crash. Luckily, everybody was okay. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully, they were all uh, okay. Um, one rider who perhaps, um, you goes without saying, the red flags came out as a result of this. One rider who was probably disappointed by that was Fabio Di Antonio, who, who uh, we got a replay of it from on board um, his, his Honda, his Grassini Honda. And he must have thought all his Christmases had come early as rider <laughs> after rider, about seven, I think he was eighth in the queue, and the seven ahead of him all just disappear stage left. Um, he somehow manages to stay upright um, and looks as if he's thinking he thought he was in the position that Peko Banyaya was in in Malaysia last year where we had a similar scenario where rider after rider went down and Banyaya went on to win uh, a very, very comfortable race with half the field out of play. Um, Dijan Antonio probably thought he was going to be in a similar scenario but of course the red flags came out due to oil that was spilled because Dijan Antonio on that onboard replay, he rode on and they very nearly dropped it on the way into the next corner because fluids had been dropped all the way around the racetrack. Um... Nicolo Bulliger uh, was one of the riders, as Dre mentioned, who was involved. He took a serious hit to the back um, as, ri- as rider after rider, along with their motorcycles, came his direction uh, in the gravel trap because Bulliger had qualified second, so he was right up the front of the race. And um, it does beg a question, Dre. I don't know how many provisions there are in a schedule to do this. Um, I mean, we we saw World Supersport, famously at Imola, get red flagged countless times to the point that they delayed it until after World Superbike Race 2 on the Sunday. Um, at Imola because they just couldn't fit it in the schedules given that there were so many riders in pain uh, or needed checking up and given that there were so many bikes that needed fixing could MotoGP perhaps have taken a decision to delay this race and maybe give Moto3 until after at least the Moto2 race if not MotoGP to get themselves in order Maybe. Um, there's no easy answer here. No. I, I, I'm not a TV director. I can't really fill in what, like, what the provisions are, like what the ifs, the, the, the ifs and the buts. Here's what I know. The only time you see Moto3 run last is at Silverstone. Like that is their tradition. They run Moto3 at the end because of you know British time and whatnot. They, they like having the MotoGP race in the middle. Um, my logic would have been if they if they're gonna put the Moto3 race last, that they probably have to push everything else up more than likely so have the moto 2 race go on immediately instead or something along those lines and, that, and at that point if you're doing that you're probably messing up a lot of tv contracts that are broadcasting the race at a set time and they've moved the moto gp race earlier like not every country airs the support class races that's something that's got a point that's worth pointing out i know bt sport very generously do share the, share the entire weekend um, not every country does that, from what I've been told. I know America, for example, thanks to RJ O'Connell, he's told me it's like America does not, for example. So that would mess their timing up royally if, if, if they've yanked the entire race weekend around and put Moto2 on essentially first. 
um, instead of instead of um, you know Moto Three, obviously. So short answer, probably not. Long answer, this is Dorna. They have a habit of coming up with good solutions to these problems. If they really wanted to do it, they probably could. But given that TV is a very complicated and head-scratching sort of industry to be involved in, take it from me, I've studied it for a long time, um, there's no easy answer to that one. But again, I think you're absolutely right, Sonny. I think your common sense solution probably would have prevailed if... Yeah, like, I would have no problem with them putting Moto3 at the end. It would have made perfect sense, given how big of the day it was. Now, uh, such was a, it was a massive amount of oil as well. But, uh, yeah, overall, just a bit of a messy situation all around. And, again, no easy answer if you're a TV director. At least this is what I'm aware of. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many how difficult it is i mean the, i guess the issue because i don't think it would have been too hard to just literally run motor gp at normal time and then put motor 3 after that um at whatever it would have been sort of 230 british time 330 in france and but i don't know how difficult it would have made it in terms of getting everyone out of the circuit um afterwards um as you say there is no easy answer to this um but I just, I just, it didn't sit well with me that we were putting the bikes back out there within half an hour of this multi-bike pile-up happening. And not only that, but using the quick restart procedure, uh, which basically means sends the bike, send the bikes out within a minute of pit lane opening. They've got a line up on the grid with one mechanic out there, and then off they go on the, the formation lap to start the race. Um, and that just seemed a little quick to me, um, given yeah. that you had so many bikes that had been damaged in a in a crash on the second lap that... Like, have, they, have they really given these these bikes and these teams enough time to check these things over to make sure that everything's fixed properly? I mean, we don't want another bike dropping fluids again. Um, as it was, the race Absolutely. that followed went off without incident. So, uh, yeah, we, sorry, sorry we, to cut to this one second, but I think you're. I think this is the problem with with putting races on TV. Like, they feel mm. like you have to get everything through. I mean, why else would the quick restart procedure be invented by Dorna in the first place? They want mm. to get these bikes back on track as quickly as possible and that maybe not necessarily is the right thing to do yeah i think i think a lot of the time when we get red flags i mean this was a very exceptional circumstance that we had at the weekend i mean normally when we get a red flag in a race it's perhaps because one bike has dumped oil but or maybe i don't know a rider has crashed and he's ended up in harm's way on the racetrack so they've had to throw a red because the, you know the medical crew have had to get onto the circuit to carry the rider away or or what have you um, it's very rare that we have a red flag because so many bikes have gone down. You know, practically half the field has gone. Yeah. Um, so it, it's very rare that we've ever been in this position. But yeah, as I say, it just didn't quite sit well with me that we we were basically sending bikes out 20 minutes after they'd all crashed. And were we were we were we completely certain that they'd all been fixed properly? I mean, you, you cannot fix these bikes in any other way then you, you surely you're in a rush if you fix it by that quick i know they're well rehearsed at doing it because they, they have to do it often in practice sessions but yeah i just i just wasn't sure whether that perhaps was the right way to go as it was we got away with it so i guess don will say they did make the right call as it happened then in the race that did happen it was a shortened race two-third distance um given the quick restart procedure we ended up looking like we we're gonna have a two-bike fight for the win up front between romano fanati and Joanne Mir, two riders who were involved in that earlier pileup. So they were both glad of the red flag that gave them another chance to restart. Unfortunately for Romano Fanati Dre, he did not make much use of his reprieve because he crashed again. Ugh. Oh, Fanati. How many times? Yeah, we've been here before, folks. Romano Fanati shows promise, gets a second chance in this case, and then blows said second chance. 
stop me if you've heard this one before. Um, yeah, unfortunate for, for Romano. We, we, we've, like I said, we, we've been through here so many times before Fanati again, showing that he's got tremendous reps. He goes well around here. I think he won here last year from, from a couple of years ago, if I'm not mistaken. He got he won here a couple of years ago when he was still with the VR46 team. And Yeah, I think he did win last year. I think it was his only win of the year last year. Yes, again, there you go. He really likes it here, and uh, down he went, because, of course, <laughs> how very remarkable Fanati. Yeah, and, and as I say, it came at a point where it looked like, I mean, the live championship was seeing Fanati actually take the lead of the championship while he was leading that race from Joan Mir, because they were pretty close together uh, in the points. As it is, Mir has now pulled a sizable gap on Fanati as a result of winning that race. And Joan Mir, uh, Dre, who hasn't had the, hasn't had the greatest of two races since his two victories to start the season. I mean, he was never really on the pace of Aaron Cannett in Texas, but then who was? Uh, Fanati was pretty much the only guy who was able punched to... Punched the nose! Yeah, who punched him in the nose to win the race. Um, Joan Mir took a podium to get out of there. Didn't have... Well, he took a, took a point to finish. Then took a podium at Jerez after that last lap dive bomb from Cannett. Um, but this looked much more like the Joan Mir that started the season because it had to be said, he was chasing down Fanati when Fanati went down. Yeah, he was. Like, like it looked to me that Joanne Mir had 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 this race under control. Pretty like it's 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 like watching Danny Kent when he won the title on the same, pretty much the same bike two years ago. It was just, just again, just another level of control from Joanne Mir. That's something you just don't normally see in Moto Three in Qatar. He pretty much controlled that one too, despite having about fifteen, about 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 fifteen bikes behind him. But yet the guy that led most of the race was Joanne Mir, and it was the same year. This time, he just had such blistering pace, nobody had an answer for him, and he did it again here on this occasion. I mean, he won the race by 4.2 seconds in the end again. Um, just just Mir looking like he's on another level so far this season compared to everybody else. Mm, yeah, three wins out of five for, for Joanne Mir now, um, and as a result, leads the championship uh, quite comfortably. Um, largely thanks to Fanati's crash course have Fanati finished second to him there'd still be a very very close top two um, in the world championship at the moment because Mia had such a dominant lead as Dre mentioned over four seconds by the end and Fanati was no longer there to chase him the typical Moto3 pack racing instead centred around the battle for second um, in the Grand Prix and much like in her Dre it was the Platinum Bay real estate KTMs that took centre stage the video game team <laughs> Yeah, the, the the video game team and they're at it again. Like somebody stop, somebody somebody stop Ramirez. He's making a mockery of the factory Moto Three teams there for the KTM guys. Yeah, Marcos Ramirez is at it again. Um, another great result from him for the Platinum Bay team there. Um, again, second race in a row, he's finished his top KTM. This time, uh, Juan van Guevara was up there as well to give him a little bit of company in that leading in that group in that group in that fight for second. But again, another strong result for Ramirez and. It looks like Honda genuinely has the measure of KTM this year um, when it comes to Moto3. So it looks like KTM are almost in that new Mahindra role where they're just trying to dig up whatever they can get. Mm. And Ramirez seemingly out of nowhere having a really, really good season. Yeah, they're <laughs> picking up scraps, aren't they, at the moment? And yeah, Marcos Ramirez, second in the row um, that he's been top KTM, second in a row that he's been fourth at the finish. Um, but unfortunately, again, it wasn't all great news for Platinum Bay Real Estate uh, KTM because as I say they took centre stage in that fight for second and at, with half a lap to go Dre it looked like they were going to win it poor Darren Binder not again no Binder no he had second in the palm of his hands god damn you Binder 
Oh yeah, I, I, again, like I, I was like I was putting them in. It looks like the Platinum Bay team's got a really solid team this year. If, yeah. if, if both him and Ramirez are having really really good results, but it looks like Binder is always like five percent over the line when it comes to these situations. And it, look, if if Binder dials it down a notch, he's going to have a couple of really nice results. He might even win a race this year because. The outright speed of Binder is ridiculous. It's up there with the very best right now, and he's really put it together this year. But just another needless crash from Binder, and it's like, Binder, get the bike over the line first. Worry about the results later. Uh, just just a, a really unfortunate one. But hey, nice bunny hop from in, in that race as well, which ended up, again, kind of going yes. viral. Yes, yeah, true. Uh, I mean, it's so obviously he hadn't taken a look behind him, unfortunately, because if he only had known that the likes of Canet and uh, Ramirez behind him had kind of got embroiled in a bit of a battle behind him, and he actually had a little bit of a gap, he had about a half second gap um, back to third place, so he didn't actually need to push it quite as hard on the final lap. He just needed to basically ride sensibly, and he'd finish second uh, in the end. So Darren Bender missing out on that maiden podium uh, in Moto3, but the way he's going at the moment, it's bound to come very, very soon. Um, the big beneficiary of that, of course, was Aaron Canet, who moved up to second place, who um, really, since since the start of the season, it has to be, Dre, is looking like a genuine front-running guy. He's proved that that win um, in Jerez was no flash in the pan. Second here, having come closer than anyone's really come to winning a Grand Prix without winning it uh, in Texas, Um is Aaron Canet looking like perhaps a guy that could well, as the season goes on long-term, take the fight genuinely to Joanne Mir? Maybe this is the year that Aaron Canet puts it all together. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Um, yeah, out of the hodgepodge of a mess that has been Moto3 outside of Joanne Mir's seeming dominance, the most consistent second name I can probably pick out right now so far this season has been Aaron Canet. Again, Carrot probably should have won in America. He did win in Jerez, and he's finished a very solid second here, winning that pack fight with Giancinino and um, Ramirez and Guevara that were in that group in that four-way fight for second place. So, yeah, Canic was didn't Canic finish fourth here last year as well? Like it seems like he likes yes, Lamont. He did. Yeah, like it's like he's like I, was, I remember Canic did well here last year. So maybe this is one of his stronger tracks. But yeah, like it looks like Canet has genuinely taken a step up this year, and you know, no better time because I think he was the rookie last year that was outclassed by Mir, given that Mir was top five overall, and Canet was looked at as the disappointment by comparison. So Canet and, and Mir seemingly coming into, into, into their own in Moto Three this year, by the looks of it. Yeah, it's, it's worth pointing out that the CEV, the Junior World Championship in Moto Three, do go to Le Mans. Uh, they do support the MotoGP race uh, at that venue, and uh, they did so last weekend as well. Um, so, yeah, Canet's got experience of Le Mans outside of his Grand Prix experience there. And, yeah, as you say, Drake, clearly likes the place. Um, finishing second. Third, going to Fabio Di Gian Antonio. Um, that's his second podium of the year. Of course, he was on the podium in third uh, at Texas as well. And, Dre, as we said, third is good result for Di Gian Antonio, not least with Mugello up next. Hey, yeah, the, the the breakout race yes. of Fabio last year, um, yeah, that's not a bad, uh, not a bad momentum ride, um, or should I say something corny like riding the wave of momentum? It's going to Mugello mm. with, with a podium finish, and yeah, again, Fabio's been in and around the mix again this season, just like he was pretty much the second half of last year. 
he's keeping that good form going, and that was a nice result for Fabio there. So with Magello up next, around he's going to be desperate to win, given how strong he was. I think he was second place last year. If he can do that again, then he'll probably leave himself into title contention. Hmm, yeah, <laughs> another another bizarre race for his teammate uh, Jorge Martin, who took what I think was his at least his third pole, if not his fourth. I think it's his third pole in five races uh, Martin took yeah. um, at the weekend, although he did inherit it because, of course, Bulliger um, exceeded track limits on his pole lap and was dropped to second. Martin took pole. Martin then crashed, as many did, on the second lap of the original start, and they crashed at exactly the same corner uh, at the restart. Um, couldn't blame oil for that one. Um, so just as he fell from pole to virtually nowhere in Jerez, Martin doing the same uh, at Le Mans as his teammate took a podium. Um the race as it finished then, Joan Mir the winner by four seconds from Canet, Dijan Antonio third, uh, then came Ramirez in fourth, Guevara, who Dre mentioned a moment ago uh, on the RBA KTM in fifth, uh, Bastianini sixth on the second Estrella Galicia bike, Jules Danilo, top Frenchman, uh, in seventh. Um, not that there are many Frenchmen about in Moto3, but you get my drift. Home race, seventh. Mino eighth. Bo Benschneider, ninth on the first of the Red Bull KTMs. Teammate Antonelli crashed several times. Um, Stop me if you've heard that one before. And Danny Kent finishing. Yeah, well, he crashed in that original start as you mentioned earlier, and then he crashed twice in the second in the second race. Yeah, um, Jesus. So um, yeah, Antonelli doing what Antonelli does, um, and that's not finished. Danny Kent, his uh, one-off teammate, taking tenth. Of course, former world champion in this class. Um, we've got news on him later on. Um, he's switching classes again um, for the next round uh, at Magello. We'll tell you what he's up to. Uh, a little bit later on. Um, notables elsewhere. Uh, first points of the season for Peugeot, thanks to Confound in 11th. McPhee came from 25th on the grid to 12th. Uh, first points as well in Moto3 for the tie rider Nakar in Alirat Fuvapat. He was 13th. Dalaporta, first points for <laughs> him. Practice that one. <laughs> Thankfully, I've had to say that a few times now, so I know how it's pronounced. Dalaporta, first points for him. Junior world champion in 14th. And Marco Bezzecchi also scoring his first points for Mahindra in 15th um nicolo bulliger though dre finishing down in 17th and um yeah this poor guy who just cannot catch a break this season can he because he'd qualified on the front row had pole ripped from his grasp because he exceeded track limits and then he was hurt quite literally more than just about anybody else in that first lap pileup yeah yeah so, so, like, it, it looks like out of everybody in that big accident bulliger drew the short straw on that one it's just it just rounds off just what so far it's been a rotten season for him and the VR46 team in general. He was their leading guy going into this season. Tight, yeah, exactly. He was Bookie's title favorite as well. Um, so it's just not worked out for Budiger so far this season. Like, um, you know what? I, you know what I blame? I blame you two for for for, for <laughs> predicting him. No, I blame you and, and Bex for jinxing him by repeating his surname Bodega. repeatedly. <laughs> the one time I wasn't on this show. Hmm. See, you see what happens, folks. You see what happens when I'm not here. Like Sutherby and Bex out here just jinxing riders now. Like this is this is what happens. <laughs> yeah, how bad, how bad. Yeah, Bolliger, uh, the aforementioned, um, he's way down the championship standings at the moment. As I run you through those, Joan Mia leads it. Um, no surprise there with three wins out of five. He's 34 clear now of Fanati in second. Uh, Mia on 99. Then comes Fanati on 65. Canet on 63. Uh, in third, Jorge Martin uh, down to fourth on 59, McPhee down to fifth now on 53, Dijan Antonio sixth on 51, 
Um, so it's close from second downwards, if nothing else. Mino seventh on 43. Then comes Ramirez, who stays eighth on 36. Guevara into ninth on 34. And Bastianini tenth on 31. Notice I've not mentioned Bodega yet. He's 11th on 22 points. He is 77 points off the championship lead after five rounds. Uh, into Moto2. Um, and uh, this is a championship which... Um, if Moto3 is looking like it's going to be a one-man show, then uh, dreading Moto2 is going to be two. Franco Morbidelli's back. Hashtag Frankie wins, lol. Mm. Um, yeah, he's, he's finished four out of the five races this season, and all four times he has won the Grand Prix. Crashed out of the lead in the other one. Crashed out of the lead in the other one, yeah. It, it looks like Frankie's got this under lock and key at this mm. point. Like, just, just, I'd say rack it up. I think, we're, I think we're just about done here in Moto2 this season because Frankie looks like he's a class above everybody else right now. And, you know, he made it look very comfortable in the end. I mean, sure, we'll talk about the man that put a lot of pressure on him towards the end, but I think even he gave up the ghost on the final lap. And, yeah, Frankie just, again, he's, 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 he's like a metro. He's like clockwork right now. He just seems to be doing all the right things and, you know, barely making any mistakes, making everybody else do the hard work. And, like, on outright pace, no one's got an answer for him in this class. Yeah, and um, if there was a key moment in this Moto2 race, it wasn't a race of many memorable moments, let's be fair. Um, but um, if there was one, it has to be the moment that Morbidelli definitively took the lead, where he basically flat out punched Thomas Lutti out of the way uh, at La Chapelle uh, to take the lead. Uh, yeah, which um, Lutti, of course, who is Mr. Le Mans in Moto2, he's got a better record there than anybody else in the class. Um, which, to be fair, isn't hard when you've been in there since the start. Um, but you get my drift. Lutie's won there twice. Um, had taken pole on the Saturday with a lap record um, and was leading the Grand Prix until Morbidelli elbowed him out of the way. And um, didn't that picture half tell a lot, Dre, about the two riders that we're talking about here? Morbidelli and Lutie. Morbidelli, a guy going places, and a guy who just clearly just has an extra edge on Lutie these days. It, like, if there was ever, like, a euphemism for the career of Thomas Lutie in Moto2, it was probably, a like, a slightly younger, slightly more talented rider punting him out of the way to get towards the championship. Like, that's the Thomas Lutie Moto2 story. Always one guy a level up from him. Always one guy that's like that's got like half a second on him. Poor Thomas Lutie. It happened again. Uh, yeah, like to sum it. I mean, to be fair, I don't think it was totally Frankie's fault. I think he was about to. I think he had a big wobble himself, and Lutie just unfortunately happened to be outside of him. Yeah, to be fair, I didn't think it was even a bad move. It was just a move of hey, I'm coming through. If you want to let me through, let me through. If not, then we're gonna come together. Yeah, there's gonna be contact. And again, Frankie had a near miss himself, and I think Lutie just happened to be the unfortunate guy on the outside of him and it had to obviously move Luti out of the way but even so the fact that Luti finished six seconds behind Frankie by the end of the race kind of says that Luti didn't really have an answer for him anyway um, and it was just a matter of an inevitable sort of battle between the front two that uh, Morbidelli was always going to win in the end and yeah there, there you go Morbidelli does go on to win Luti limps home in third and probably the ego taking more damage than anything else mm. um, and it's it just further extends Morbidelli's championship lead and again it's looking more and more certain by the day that uh that uh, Frankie right now has got all the answers and Lutie's gonna have to be gonna have to win multiple races again and if he can't take advantage of of Morbidelli on arguably his, um, arguably his best track Lutie then that's not a good sign going forward yeah I thought you were going for the Rowdy Roddy Piper reference there I thought you were going to say Thomas is going to have to change the questions uh, <laughs> no, um, but um, but yeah let's talk about the one guy who Dre sort of teed up earlier on the one guy who really um, kept Franco honest uh, in this Grand Prix and um, 
if you haven't seen this race and haven't followed Moto2, um, this isn't the name that you're expecting me to read out. It was Peko Banyaya um, for Sky VR46, um, who Dre has now finished second two races running um, in his fourth and fifth race in the class. Um, can we possibly go overboard on how good this kid's doing in Moto2? Well, this has been an astonishing turn of events for the last two rounds for Peko Banyaya. This was... Like, second, he was, he could say that maybe he was a beneficiary of, of Frankie Morbidelli's fall, but he was clearly in that, in, you know, in, in, in the, you know, showing top tier level pace. And he's carried it forward here. I mean, basically, the second half of that race was a time trial between yeah, it Morbidelli punch and punch, wasn't it? It was, it was punch v counter punch. It was one tenth here, one tenth back the other way. It was basically a glorified time attack between the two of them. It was like, okay. I'm going to set a, I'm going to set a 37.8. See if you can beat that one. Okay, gotcha. Here's a 37.2. Okay, I've got a 36.8. Try and beat that one. Fine. And it, it was it was a time troll. Again, it was until the last lap. It was never really more than a tenth either way. And I think Pecco was slowly, slowly reeling him in. But then Pecco made a mistake on the final lap. It opened the gap up. This is it. Lap. This is it. The final, yeah. the final margin is 1.7 seconds. But that flatters Franco, to be honest, because... Banyaya started grandstanding with a couple of corners to go and wheeling over the line. Otherwise, he would have been within a second of him um, over the line. Banyaya did what his uh, quasi-boss perhaps wishes he'd done uh, three or four corners out from the MotoGP race and sort of settled for second. Um, Banyaya, it was around that point where Banyaya thought, do you know what? Second will do me. Uh, and started wheeling and waving, waving to the crowd um, because he had such a big gap behind him uh, to Thomas Lutti in third. But, um, yeah, we're, we're talking, surely we're talking about Banyaya now in the realms of guys like Marquez Vinales who have got to grips with this class so quickly. Because if we didn't have such a dominant championship leader, Banyaya would be, he'd be challenging for race victories right about now. Yeah, he'd be in the conversation for sure. And if it wasn't for Alex Marquez, who's also been pretty strong so far this season. Well, he's the only was... guy that's been able to go with Mark BDS in the last two rounds. Yeah, like in, in the whole season so far, like essentially it's been. Oliveira in Argentina to a degree and Peko Bagnaia here and that's about it for Mark VDS. Mark VDS, we mentioned it before, I mean the, the phrase I used with Julian Ryder there, like he said it a couple of years ago when they were when they just merged with Australia Galicia where Ryder said Mark VDS are a MotoGP's team in sheep's clothing. Re- referencing the fact that this was the year in 2014 where they had Rabat and Calio together and they won 10 races together and it was the most that any team had ever won in a Moto2 season. It, it's looking like it could be the same deal here because Manix Marquez, again, had a solid fourth place in the end. Another decent result from him. And yeah, Mark Vies, look as a team, they look way better than anything else on, that's on the board right now. Nobody else consistently is, is coming close right now. And if they are coming close, it's one bike out of the two. It's not both of them. It's not a double threat by any stretch of the imagination. So Mark VDS have got two good riders, an excellent setup for their bikes, and one guy right now that is looking like he's on another level compared to everybody else in the field. And that kind of says it all, really. Hmm. Thomas Luti had to settle for third then behind Bagnaia. That's I think that's four podiums in five races for Luti now. Um, he's having a consistent enough start, but unfortunately none of those rostrums have been victories um, so far. Um, Alex Marquez uh, just behind him. Marquez beaten to third by Luti. Um, his... Race this weekend, Dre, couldn't quite be called glorious, like some called it uh, after the Jerez race. Um, but he still deserves credit for this one, given that he broke his foot 24 hours prior. 
yeah, he did break his foot, and oh God, I just, God, I haven't given a lot of these guys change gears with their feet as well. Mm. In more yeah, it was his gear change foot as well that he broke. Oh God, that that sounds that sounds all sorts of painful. Um, or queue up all the morphine you can think of right now, and the paracetamol. Yeah. Because that sounds really painful. Um, but yeah, despite all things to do, that is a still a very, very good result indeed. Yeah, they have some good stuff in Clinica Mobile, don't they? In uh, in MotoGP, um, Marquez in fourth, Pasini taking fifth. Um, for Calix ahead of the top suitor of Dominique Agata. Uh, then came to Nakagami <laughs> for Calix's seventh. Simone Corsi for speed up eighth. Xavi Vieje for Tech 3 ninth. Um, of course, that was the team's home round. Uh, Yoni Hernandez in tenth. That's his second points finish in a row in Moto 2. Rest of the points were taken by Sayarin in eleventh. Schrotter twelfth. Cardus in thirteenth. Um, that was the only KTM points that we saw all weekend. Cortese in 14th and Axel Pons in 15th. And that's a, that's a point worth bringing up, to be fair, from um, the Moto2 race at Le Mondre. Where were the KTMs? Um, uh, Pass. Uh, <laughs> nowhere to be seen is the answer to, to your question on that one. Very surprising to see Miguel Oliveira that far down in 17th and out of the points and yeah, basically beaten up by his teammate and others alike. Um... Very bizarre. Again, it, w- it was a strange weekend in the sense for KTM because this is, obviously this is still a, it's easy to forget because Oliveira has been so good that this is a brand new team um, with a brand new bike. There was a lot of rain uh, over the course of the weekend, so there was a, there probably a lot of. I mean, this was probably going to be a challenge for a lot of Moto Two bikes, given this is a spec series essentially, and they had next to no dry running almost all weekend. So it was basically just like basically you're, you're, you're shooting your shot in terms of setup. And you're going out there and seeing what sticks. So I think it's the kind of race where you could have very easily got it wrong um, if you didn't get it set up. Because I mean, Fabio Quattararo was right behind him as well. And he's another guy that's normally, so far at least, been a, known for fighting a little bit higher than this. And he's a former pole man at Le Mans in, in Moto3 as well. So he, he knows his way around that place because it was his uh, home round. Um, a couple, couple of guys who we didn't mention in that result because they didn't score points who deserve a mention. So I'll mention them now. Luca Marini is one who qualified fourth on the grid. Uh, on Saturday, continuing to make some impressive progress in that forward racing team, um, having you know been one of the sort of unheralded rookies of last season, um, looking like a really serious top ten contender now uh, in Moto Two this season. And the other one is Taron McKenzie, of course, debuted for the Suter-backed uh, Kiefer team. Of course, he's now taking Danny Kent's ride. Uh, that team um, didn't. The results don't exactly state that he did a great job, but far from disgraced himself on his Grand Prix debut with no testing or no experience on a Moto2 bike. Qualified 29th ahead of Edgar Pons and ahead of Kyrill Idan Pauwi um, and was running just outside the top 20 when he crashed. So we hope to see more from him as he gets more experience on the bike starting okay. at Mugello, um, which is next weekend. Championship standings then after all of that. Uh, Franco Morbidelli leads it. He is up to 100 points for the season now. Um, in Moto2 with his four wins out of five. He leads Thomas Lutti by 20 points. Um, that's Lutti's consistency coming into play there, guys. Uh, Marquez in third, 18 points further back. Uh, he's leapfrogged Oliveira after his pointless uh, return from Le Mans. Uh, Banyai is up to fifth on 53. Uh, then comes Nakagami on 41 in sixth. Aigata is seventh on 37, ahead of Fieke in eighth. Uh, Corsi ninth, and Schrotter rounds out the top 10 in the Moto2 World Championship.
we uh, mentioned this a little bit earlier on, so we'll come on to it now as we run you through the uh, very little news we have um, for this show before we wrap up for this week. Um, and it's news looking ahead to next weekend at Mugello, because we're going to see Danny Kemp back in action, Dre, and for the uh, third race in a row, he's going to be in a different class to the previous one. Um, from Moto2 to Moto3, and Dre, back to Moto2 again. Like, Danny Kent's really making a bad habit of this, isn't he? Jeez. Mm. Um, uh, not... Like he's this is going he's gone he's gone from Moto three to Moto two to Moto three again to Moto two again back to Moto three for a wild card and now back to Moto two again with the Interwit and Suter team um, alongside Thomas Luti after I I believe one of their riders yeah. did their did their collarbone in last yeah. time right Ike Laquona who uh, was the uh, unfortunate victim of uh, the Marquez crash that we mentioned earlier where Marquez um, high sided in free practice three. And um, basically, Ika Laquona was the uh, innocent victim who just got scooped up um, on the outside of the corner as Marquez's bike basically pulled the rug from underneath him. Uh, Laquona, of course, sent straight to the tarmac. And it, in some ways, they're almost worse than a normal crash, if you like, because there's no way that um, Vieje, uh, not Vieje, um, Laquona was in any way to prepare himself for that. There was no... It's not like when the front end goes that you can brace yourself for a, for a slide through the gravel trap. He just got basically scooped up by a crashing motorcycle uh, and went straight down on his collarbone. Um, so unfortunately, Laquona will be out injured. This is a kid who's had horrendous injury luck um, over the last year because he missed the first couple of rounds of the season because of an injury picked up in pre-season testing. So Laquona will not be uh, at Magella next weekend. So that Interveten seat, uh, the second seat alongside Luti in that Interveten Calix team, will be taken by Danny Kent. Um, so uh, he's back in that old shop window again next weekend at Magello. Um And to be fair, Dre, in all seriousness, that's kind of what it is for Danny Kent because we did say when he lost his his ride, or I said lost it, he uh, voluntarily gave it up because he quit the team um, yeah. from Suter. It's good. You know, who was going to employ this guy again? Who was going to give him that chance to rebuild his reputation in Moto2? Well, he's kind of got a guilt-edged chance now, hasn't he? Well, this, I, I think this is a golden ticket for Danny Kent because this is the Interwitten team and Thomas Suter's second in the championship right Class now. Class outfit. Um, Class outfit. Interwitten's been a, it's been a solid team for years. Lutie's been a great rider for a long time. And it's a bike that is capable of winning races. We've seen it multiple times in the last few years. Luti is capable of winning almost any given round in front of him on his day. So Kent's not got any excuses now. This is a genuinely good outfit, genuinely good resources. Great riders of Luti and Mulhauser in there. And yeah, if like Kent's got to be thinking of top 10 here, because anything less than that's going to look like a disappointment, quite frankly, because like I said, it's like you could maybe make a case that the Kiefer outfit isn't doing all that great. But then you realize Dominique Agata is seventh in the championship right now on top suitor by a considerable margin. He's doing a very good job, given that he's surrounded by Calyxes, a Tech 3, and a KTM, for crying out loud. So, he's back on a Calyx again. He's not his, not his ideal preference. He's back on what he preferred, a Calyx, and you know, he's with a, he's, he's got a good team around him, free bikes, resources. Like, Kent's really got to make this one work, otherwise he's going to be back onto, he's going to be back down the job market by, by the two, alongside Leon Camia back in the day. Rider for hire sort of season, you know. But, yes, uh, that's just about to say exactly that. He's uh, he's finding that rider for hire slot um, kind of appealing yeah. now because uh, yeah, teams are now looking in his direction when riders go down injured. So yeah, Danny Kent has a great opportunity next week um, to show what he's really about uh, in Moto Two. Um, in his view, anyway, that's if we haven't necessarily seen that already. Um, Danny's got an opportunity to. 
put himself back in that shot window again with the Interventing team. Uh, that's something as yellow next weekend. Um, the round after that is the uh, Catalonia Grand Prix, of course, the Grand Prix that was uh, dominated by tragedy uh, last year when we lost Louis Salom to a crash on the Saturday, which triggered some frenetic changes to the circuit layout um, for the race weekend to continue. Now, a year on, um, the circuit layout has changed ever so slightly from uh, from the circuit layout that they raced on last season, the Formula One layout, um, in that they are using a chicane. It's not the same chicane as the Formula One. It's a sort of chicane cut into the middle uh, of the gap between uh, the corners uh, preceding it and the actual chicane itself. Um, if anyone watched the Formula One race and you noticed a chicane cut into the middle of that runoff, it's that chicane that MotoGP are using um, in a couple of weeks' time. And they're also using the hairpin at turn 10. Mm-hmm. Um Andre, amongst the teams who've been testing there this season, it's not exactly gained universal approval, has it? No, I think the universal reaction has been, we don't like this chicane very much. It's far too slow. And it just, yeah, it's it's just, it just doesn't really make sense. Now, I get the I get the frustration. I get why they're using this chicane. There really isn't much of a viable alternative right now. However, and I think Lewis pointed this out before we went on the air, and I think he's right, it's been 12 months since Louis Salon passed away, and like you'd think, in a year, they could have had time to form a proper solution, especially given the prospect of them using the F1 layout was on the table for years prior to this. Mm. So what happened with Salon? Like, like, Alicia Spagaro pointed it out during safety meetings that it had been on the table, but the, the paddock was 50-50 split um, on using the F1 layout instead for many, many years, and Salon was basically the tipping point for that. Um, sadly, but again, in, in the year that's gone by since, nothing's changed, and that's unfortunate. I mean, I'd like to think most will be a little bit more proactive in trying mm. to stop things from happening again. And in twelve months, they've basically just cut out another chicane. Like, I don't see what that gains. Like, like I, I get it. Like, you're not you're basically getting rid of the old turn twelve and next to runoff. But if the riders don't like it, then they're going to kick up a fuss about it. Unfortunately, that's just, just that's just how black riders are. We saw. Like Valentino Rossi basically shameless last year by saying, "Now I don't like this chicane." Um, yeah, Valley, uh, yeah, Valley, like bigger picture, my friend, bigger picture. But yeah. um, and ironically, yeah. that guy but, would go on to win the race. Amazing, that it. But um, yeah, like like I said, it's one of those things where you've got to be a bit careful here. But you'd think in a year they'd have been a bit, they'd have been a bit more proactive and trying to look for a solution. Yeah. It kind of makes you think given that a year on, this is the layout we're using that it's almost like, well, this chicane's here to stay guys uh-huh. uh, in, in MotoGP because like I say, the, the other option, and this is the option that Loris Baz has suggested um, because Loris Baz openly used the word hate on uh, social media. He hates the new layout. Uh, he said he didn't think it would be possible to make a circuit that he dislikes more than the Saxon ring. Um, but he obviously doesn't like that place. But he, think, he says he thinks he might have found it in, in Barcelona now. Um, the only other option is to create more runoff uh, at that corner, which means you've got to move grandstands and, and so on. So, um, yeah, that's that's not the work of the moment. But as Dre says, they've had a full year now. Um, and it's not like Formula 1 needs that... Um, you know, it's not like Formula One runs through that corner anyway, so you know, it's not like they couldn't put gravel down there either. So, you know, there, there were solutions in play here, but they've obviously decided to implement the chicane and stick with it. And as we say, given what happened last year, we can't exactly turn around and say they're wrong. But you do kind of wonder if other solutions could have been explored. Uh, that's for two weeks' time. The uh, Catalonia Grand Prix, which runs back to back with Mugello, so we have two MotoGP races in the next two weekends um, from next weekend 
onwards uh, on this weekend. Um, one or at least two of the races will have taken place by the time you hear this. Um, of course, the World Superbikes are in action this weekend at Donington Park. An emotionally charged weekend, of course. Uh, given what's happened um, in the past week. Uh, the Red Bull World Superbike team, the Red Bull Honda team, are running one bike. Nicky Hayden's bike will be on display in the garage all weekend, which is a nice touch from that team, and we hope that Stefan Bridal can get some results for that team as he goes alone um, this weekend. Um, but looking ahead to next week's show, Dre, um, the, the results here will kind of dictate what kind of show we have next week because um, a, a certain host of this show, yours truly, is expecting a Tom Sykes double, nothing less. <laughs> and anything less i will throw you on an open fire so to me <laughs> um yeah, i'm sorry this is the tom sykes around he's going yeah. for 10 straight donington wins and anything less and like uh, if jonathan ray wins one of these like the side of me i'm going to destroy you well it's, it's, it's as simple as that so, like it, like it has to be a jonathan ray victory um I, I, you know what? i've got a bad feeling ray might steal one i really do like, yeah, I have a hunch because he's just been so good this season. That this I is feel the like... thing. I mean, like we said with Frank and Warbidelli, where it's kind of, yeah, time to go home here, guys. It's like, if Jonathan Ray's even winning at Donington now, <laughs> we're all screwed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cancel this season. Um, one more small extra news story that's come out since we started recording this episode. Valentino Rossi has had to go to hospital over a training crash. Um, he's gone to Rimini Hospital while training in, in, on a motocross bike. Somewhere, Rebecca James is going to be pumping her fist in anger. Yeah, that's, her, right, that's her major hobby horse, isn't it, in uh, in racing these days? Riders who injure themselves in motocross accidents. Um, yes. So, uh, uh, yeah, Rossi has, uh, has come a cropper there. We wish him well. Um, yeah. and I hope to Luckily, see him not serious. Luckily, Luckily, not serious, especially with Mugello coming up. Um, which, uh, which Valentino Rossi will dearly want to be a part of as he looks to uh, end his what is now a 12-month um, victory drought. That brings us to the end of episode 14 uh, of Bike Live, a bonus show this week as we bring you two shows this week. Um, we hope you've enjoyed the both of them, of course, two very, very different shows. Um, the show we recorded yesterday was probably the hardest we've ever had to record um, in our three years of doing this um, as we paid tribute to Nicky Hayden. Um, we certainly hope we did him justice uh, in that show yesterday and we hope you've enjoyed this show as we uh, turn our attentions back to MotoGP again. We'll be back next week for episode 15 um, when we'll be talking about a Tom Sykes double, hopefully. Um, until then, the places you can find us on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101. Our website is motorsport101.net. Um, you can back us on Patreon if you like us so much that you want to earn uh, early access um, to each of our shows, Motorsport 101 and Bike Live, by backing us financially. It's patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. And finally, our YouTube channel where you can enjoy Day of Champions 2 which is uh, youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101. We hope you enjoy Day of Champions 2. Um, the whole Motorsport 101 team will be involved at one stage or another over the course of the day as the Monaco Grand Prix and the Indianapolis 500, the 101st Indianapolis 500, no less, takes place this Woo! weekend. Um, as I say, we hope you all enjoy that, and we will talk to you again next week for episode 88, the Jordi Torres edition of Motorsport 101, oh, uh, and episode 15... <laughs> Yeah, and that's an interesting line as well. I don't know whether this will still happen, given the uh, the tragedy that um, preceded this, but of course the Paddock Show takes place at Donington, and um, there was going to be a concert taking place, and Jordi Torres was apparently going to appear and was going to sing at it. Um, oh, no! Which, which, I, which I tweeted at saying, please let me, please tell us he's going to be singing Elvis. 
Um, Please. Oh, yeah. God, I would need that. Oh, yeah. that's don't know if that, Don't know if that's still happening. Um, the Paddock Show, which is a, a brilliant feature of the uh, World Superbike Weekends in the Paddock um, for the, uh, the paying public each and every weekend, that does still take place. So um, we'll see whether that, that concert does indeed still take place. And Jordi Torres um, gives us a rendition of one of his favourite Elvis tracks. We shall see. Um, but as I say, we'll return next week. Episode 88 of Motorsport 101 and episode 15 of Bike Live. We look forward to your company then from Dre and myself. It's goodbye for now.